Each year, flooding disasters have the potential to cause billions in negative financial impact, and more importantly, can imperil the lives of many, many people caught up in their path. However, thanks to data science and advanced tools and technologies, scientists are now more able than ever to assess and contend with dangerous floodwaters. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, I spoke with two experts in flood risk management and mitigation. Joining me for this episode are Roger Falconer, Emeritus Professor of Water and Environmental Engineering in the School of Engineering at Cardiff University, and Dr. Richard Crowder, Jacobs Director, Water and Environment. We discussed what they're seeing in terms of flooding frequency and severity, especially with a view towards the impact of climate change. We also discussed how emerging technologies can help with flood risk management and the latest advancements in flood model accuracy and response. So Roger and Richard, thank you both so much for joining me today. We're going to be talking about a number of topics related to flooding, flooding frequency and severity, and then mitigation steps, and also uh, flood modeling. So thank you both for joining me and sharing your expertise with our audience. I'd like to start with you, Roger, and my first question, kind of to set the table in terms of the challenges before us that flooding presents, can you speak to the changes that we're seeing in flood frequency and severity, and how does climate change play a part in that? Well, I think over the last 20 years, people have, uh, the general public have taken climate change seriously now. Up to about the turn of the last century, I think, There were a lot of cynics around, but today I think most people on most continents in the world regard climate change as probably the biggest challenge humanity faces towards the end of this century and well into the future. And it's really going to have two significant impacts on river basin systems. One, we're going to expect sea level rise depending upon which country you're in and so forth and which part of the world. But we generally seem to be expecting sea level rise to to rise by typically one metre by the end of the century. And that's going to happen in most parts of the world and in some cases a lot more. And we're going to expect to see rainfall intensity to change as well. And just in the UK, for example, in the summer months, we used to historically have uh, rainfall events when I was a child of typical drizzle I know it's always perceived that it always rains in the UK, but in the summer months, it tended to be just drizzle. And when I was a child, there was no such thing as major storms in the summer. Now we have uh, major convective storms in the summer. And I think this is making people much more aware of climate change. In 2021, for example, there were two major storms in the city of London in the UK. These were convective storms, which are typical in the Far East, like Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and so forth. We are not used to them here. We had the Boss Castle flood storm in 2004, which I think was a bit of a turning point. It was a one in 400 year flood in July, which is the time of the year when people do not expect such rainfall events. So I think most people in this country and across the world now expect significant change in sea level uh, over up to typically a one meter, maybe more over the next uh, 30, 40 years. And then perhaps leveling off a bit after that, but still continuing to rise. And typically 30 to 40% increase in rainfall intensity, and in this part of the world anyway, mainly in the summer summer months. So that's going to um, have significant impact on the, on the effects of flooding in, in many ways, actually, not just uh, river flooding. It'll affect tide locking. 
it'll affect um, surge surge uh, levels as well. And when you look at a city like London on the Thames, for example, then increasing tidal levels will have increased tidal lock, and that means the sewers are locked by the water pressure being higher in the estuary than inside. So the stormwater overflows in the sewers can't get out. So that's uh, another example of the impacts of climate change. We're going to have surges coming up much further into the estuary. Uh, alongside that, of course, we're going to have increased uh, salinity levels, and you could go on and on and on. So what is the impact for flooding? You asked, well, we're going to need more sophisticated models in the future that can run a lot faster, can integrate groundwater with surface water. And these models are going to help countries become more resilient to sea level rise and increase rainfall intensity. So we have to look at both ends of the system, both at the sea seaward end and at the uh, catchment or the upper catchments, as we would call them in the UK. We need more integrated models to address these challenges. We need to combine our, some of these are already been done, of course, with uh, Jacob's modeling and comparable in some of the other consultants, but we're going to need to use even more and better integrated models in the future, more dynamically linked so that it passes from one end of the system to the other. And therefore, we're going to have to link surface models, basically river models, to um, subsurface models, that's groundwater models, and also the sewerage system as well. And finally, on this point, we need to keep more intense rainfall events in the future out of the sewers. The sewers are typically designed for one in 25, one in 30, depends which country you're in and so forth. The um, embankments protecting properties prone to flooding are typically designed to one in 100. So the surface water regulatory authorities like the Environment Agency have a vested interest in making sure that the drains, sewerage drains, for example, uh, surface, surface runoff drains are, are clear. But that, of course, sends more water down to the sewer system, which can't cope with flows of one, uh, floods of one in a hundred. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to look at how we manage the system, how our drains are designed and so forth. And here, models like Flood Modeler are, are going to be even increasingly beneficial for the future for a much wider range of problems than mm -hmm. simply working out flood inundation extent. Mm. It's amazing when you, when you think about like the amount of rainfall and the impact that it can have on, on a water table and a local water table. I'm here in Texas, so while I tend to think of flooding as something that happens on the coast, we actually have flooding here as well when we have a lot of heavy rains and, you know, our water systems can't handle it. And, you know, listening to you, I was reflecting on, you know, I um, have some family that live in Florida, had weathered the, uh, the hurricane event last year, and then, you know, help with the cleanup efforts. And, you know, what they were telling me is, you know, when you, you have these huge hurricanes, it's not like suddenly the streets are just filled with this like pristine ocean water. It's the sewers are overrun and it's, it's actually a really nasty business. And so it tends to be something that the water systems are not necessarily outfitted to handle, you know, so anything we can do, I guess, on the up, you know, on the forefront to, offset those, it sounds like, you know, that's what we should be doing. So now, Richard, uh, you know, Roger talked about modeling, right? He introduced the concept of modeling. Can you, can you describe for us, you know, what role flood modeling plays in contributing to our understanding of flooding today and the potential future impacts of climate change? I think the understanding of flooding, it depends which, which lens or which perspective you're looking at it from. So, 
for example, as, as a member of the public, I live in the middle of England, probably as far as where you can get from the coast, 200 metres above sea level, and I might think, I'm not vulnerable to flooding at all. Why, why should I be bothered about it? I, I've, I've not seen, I've not been hit by flooding at all. But you, you only realise that you're at risk of flooding usually if it's happened to you before, or you've you've seen a neighbour or a, a local community, uh, or an area that you visited being impacted by it. But with with flood modelling, you can look at scenarios and, and understand general risks. So, for example, where I live. There's a reservoir just about a mile away from where I live, further up the valley, and that could fail, you could say, at any time, potentially. Hopefully hopefully it won't. Mm -hmm. But by using flood modelling, you can model scenarios of what if a reservoir is to fail, what would be impacted. Similarly, if, a, if an embankment or, or a levee was to fail along a river that was protecting communities, you can use flood modelling to, to help you understand what's going to be impacted upon if something was to fail. And so you can use modeling to try and provide those those insights as to what is at risk. And it might be not just from where I live today. It could be where I actually want to buy a house, because when people are buying a property, um, you'll often want to know, am I at an area at flood risk? Your insurance could be impacted by it. Your ability to get a loan for, for a property or mortgage could be impacted upon it as well. So. There's many ways that flood modelling can contribute to society in, in terms of warning them of a flood event coming along. If you look at the national flood forecasting systems that some countries have in place, it could be from being awareness of, of buying a property or even if you're going on, on your holiday. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been plenty of examples where people have been on a campsite with a tent or a caravan next to a nice river and are not realised that they're at a risk of flooding. But if they just looked at the flood maps for a particular area that are produced and are widely available on the Internet, they'll realize that they could be in a zone at a high risk of flooding. So flood modeling has a huge uh, way of contributing to just the general public. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to engineers and scientists, it's the fundamental building block of understanding risk and then coming up with ways to mitigate that risk, whether it be coming up with fl a flood forecasting and warning system to evacuate people, mm -hmm. or actually coming up with engineered solutions to protect properties, the environment, or, or land. So it is it is a fundamental uh, tool that we use for today. But the future, who knows what the future is going to be looking like? Roger mentioned that sea level rise could be up to a metre in, in some cases. We could have the intensity of rainfall um, changing significantly. The actual makeup of the land and how, how, how buildings are, are located and so forth could have a huge impact on the environment going forward. And so we can use computer models to do what-if scenarios, to do testing, to understand what the future might look like so we can adapt our future plans and our, our investment strategies and invest widely. So flood modelling plays a, a huge part on everyone, whether you're a member of the public or an engineer or scientist. Mm, well said. And, and I, I seem to recall, and the data point escapes me, but I recall seeing, I think it was the United Nations and some studies they had done, but the migratory patterns of our of the global population right now uh, and in the years to come, 2030, 2050, whatnot, tend to be that people are congregating more and more in mass in urban areas, right? So you're having more people living in urban areas and they tend they're tending to i think migrate more and more to coastal areas so we're seeing humanity moving if i'm 
if I'm correct here, more toward you know the, the coastal areas, and, and you know more people are living in coastal areas. So it sounds like flooding, flood modeling, coastal squeeze, those kinds of phenomenon are going to be more and more important <clears throat> to mitigate and manage, you know, in the decades to come. Now, Roger, you uh, you'd mentioned catchment and, you know, can you tell us what is integrated catchment modeling and can you explain what that is, how it works and how it helps with flood manage, flooding management response? Well, I'll give you, if I may, what I see as cat integrated catchment modeling, which is not necessarily always what everyone might, might argue is, is the case. Mm -hmm. Historically, in my view, if we go back to when I first started my career in the late 70s, early 80s and so forth, you would, because um, you didn't have the computing resources then to do intensive modeling, you would model just one small catchment. And when the when the several farm fields, for example, and the brook and the small stream entered the river, that was the end of the catchment. So using today's arguments, for example, you might build some woody debris dams, for example, and put them in that catchment to try and hold the water back in that catchment, which is a great thing to do. But then there'd be another catchment the other side of the river. You do the same there. You're not actually solving the problem in an integrated way because you could find that both of those woody debris dams fill at the same rate, and they, then when they're full to capacity, they release water, more water back into the river at the same time. So integrated, I, I tend to think of the catchment as being much more like what you would define in the States as the watershed or the river basin. To me, what we have now is the capabilities of modeling right from the upper end of the catchment of the basin uh, by UK standards all the way down through the river basin system right down to where the big river or the relatively large river joins the sea or joins a major uh, river which which then takes it to the sea for example so we have in in uh, in the UK we have the Y flowing into the Seine for example so you might consider the Y as a whole catchment Mm -hmm. So to me, integrated catchment modeling means modeling the system from right at the top of where the rain first falls on the land to when it ends up either in the sea or a major river then taking it on to the sea. And this avoids the problems we have now in terms of flooding from what we would call a Victorian age when people would build a weir across the river to stop a particular town flooding only then to have moved the problem further downstream. Mm -hmm. So by adopting an approach where you model the whole of the system from the top to the bottom, you can optimize your flood risks so that you reduce it for the whole river basin or the integrated catchment, if you like. Mm -hmm. And also when it comes to things like nature -based, the, the adoption of nature-based solutions, which um, people are very enthusiastic about in the UK, for example, as they are in many other parts of the world, you can hold more water back in one catchment vis-a-vis -vis another so that they're not all released from the smaller catchments, so that they're not all releasing the water from the smaller catchments into the, into the main river at the same time. So you, you can play tunes, if you like, on your integrated catchment model from the top to the bottom so that you can get the best solution for everyone. Also, as we progress to integrated catchment models, we can link and more sophisticated and powerful tools. We can integrate the model with the subsurface models too. Mm -hmm. For example, Richard mentioned um, where he lives. I can mention where I live. I live on the side of Ilkley Moor, halfway up the river. And there's a river from my house. You can see it further downstream called the Wharf. We are about the um, uh, best part of 100 meters above that river. So when I bought this house, I didn't think for one minute there would any be ch any chance of flood risk here. We don't flood from the river. 
Mm-hmm. But not a, when I started looking into details of the house, I have a cellar here, which I keep some wine in. Mm-hmm. And that cellar flooded five years ago. And that cellar flooded from the groundwater level. So, and I lived in a house before, which was right by a major river in Cardiff called the Taff. Mm-hmm. And it was at the one in a hundred year flood level. And I found a big difference. I used to, every time there was a flood, I used to get my friends in the Environment Agency Wales, as it was then called, to give me the flood, flood levels. And I would find there was a big difference between the summer, a big flood in perhaps, say, September, October, vis-a-vis the same level flood two months later when the ground was saturated. So integrated modeling, we can build these tools up and expand them to include groundwater for the future. And then, of course, once we've got our model system put in place from the top of the catchment right down to where the river joins the sea and so forth, we can extend these models beyond flooding in the future. Because flooding has important impacts on bacteria levels in the river, for example. So the cow goes on the land, the cow does its business on the land, mm-hmm. it stays there until the flood comes. And when the flood comes, that dilutes that um, cow pot, takes it into the stream, then from the stream to the river, polluting the river downstream. Mm-hmm. We have the stormwater overflows, which can't cope with big floods, but a lot of the water goes into stormwater overflows. So We can extend our models in the future to include bacteria levels, uh, nutrient levels, to look at phosphorate levels, um, algal blooms, for example. So this, um, the developments that have been made now through Flood Modeler offer tremendous opportunities for the future to have a much better management of our system for the whole catchment from the top to the bottom Mm -hmm. and to reduce health risks and improve ecological status. And I had one other point, if I may. When it comes to modeling the upland catchments, one of the things that rather worries me, some of these upland catchments are very steep. The flow is very complex. And if you take an undergraduate civil engineering course, for example, and you look at flow on a flat flat plane, that's uh, taught at undergraduate level. And a competent undergraduate civil engineering student could answer tutorial questions in an idealized uh, or exam questions in an idealized catchment. Mm -hmm. And they could predict the catchment, uh, the water levels. When it comes to a steep catchment, that's beyond an undergraduate level. So if you put this into a medical context, for example, the first example, the flat terrain, is a bit like an appendix operation. And you can do a medical degree and you can go out and do a bit of uh, appendix operations and it's pretty routine. Mm -hmm. What we are talking about down steep catchments is sort of neurological brain surgery, which, Mm. you know, you have to be a very highly specialized consultant surgeon to do that work. And that's the same here, because now when we're looking at the catchment, we have what we call transcritical flow, supercritical flow, similar to a plane flying at sonic, uh, supersonic speeds, which the typical Boeing jets, commercial jets can't do, for example, not to criticize mm-hmm. those jets. So you need a different level of highly sophisticated expertise. Mm-hmm. And in the flood modeler uh, suite, for example, you have the TVD, which is a catch, uh, shock capturing algorithm, which mm-hmm. allows you to model these very accurately. And you might think this is a technical point, which is um, rather for the academics, but quite a lot of flood modeling had been done in a site on West Wales many years ago. And there was a caravan site which flooded badly under a particular event. I think it was one 200 year flood. Mm -hmm. And the caravans were all floating all over the place. And a lot of people lived in these caravans. Yet the model predicted for this flow that this wouldn't happen. So it was only when we added this TVD algorithm that we were able to predict, yes, actually, It's not surprising these caravans moved. They would have moved simply because they weren't including shock capturing before. Mm 
Mm. And this worries me a bit because mm. what it means to me that the, as these models become more sophisticated, you need that technical expertise and understanding. So it's a bit like the neurosurgery. It's not the sort of thing that any surgeon can easily undertake. You need sophisticated level of expertise in hydrology and hydraulics and so forth. And I think you have that with big companies like Jacobs. Mm -hmm. And not only Jacobs, other companies as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Richard, so kind of picking up on that point, you know, let's let's talk about the flood modeler solution that Jacobs offers. And can you describe how it works and how the software delivers accurate modeling of like rivers, surface water and urban drainage systems? I think probably in very simple terms, mm -hmm. it's a digital twin. Just look at about if you if you're familiar with Minecraft, where you you you've got a, a kind of a, a computer game and you've got different things that you're building a virtual world. Well, that's that's exactly what we're doing with Flood Modeler. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more sophisticated. So it's it's built on a, on a GIS interface, which people are very familiar with, and you're you're taking real world pieces of data, whether it be the dimensions of the river channel whether it's the digital terrain for footprints of buildings, um, whether you've got structures in there, whether it be a culvert, a bridge, an embankment or a levee, mm -hmm. um, whether you've got pumping stations, you're taking all of these features and you're building it into your model. And one of, one of the, the rich things about flood model and, and some modeling packages is that you can include a lot of detail, and it's important to include that detail if it's going to have an impact on the flow. If you if you if you're just taking kind of a, a broad brush approach, there are a lot of features that could impact on flow routes and flow, flow paths that if you don't pick up, you will give you the wrong answers. So in simple terms, flood modeler is it is just a, a digital twin, but it's underpinned by proven science and technology. Mm -hmm. And as Roger was mentioning before on the TVD solver, you've got to use the right mathematical techniques or the right solvers depending upon the hydraulic problems you have and you're trying to solve mm -hmm. so within flood modeler we we've broken it down into you could say three core components one is the, the the hydraulics and the river and so we have a solver that models the flow in the river and all the structures that you get there it's got uh, more than a, two dozen different types of structures that you can easily model then you've got the when it comes out of banking and, and, and it starts floating above ground uh, we've got the the 2d solvers so you can you can model in high resolution and it could be to a one meter grid cell or 20 meter if you wish, the flow going over the ground and you can link that to your 1D river. And then, of course, if it goes into the urban drainage system, you need to be able to model the interaction uh, with that. And that's a different type of hydraulics again. And we have a different solver for that. So you've got three different components that you're trying to link together in a mathematical way. And what Flood Modeler does, it enables you to build all those components from a visual perspective. And then it plugs all the maths together in a, in a very sophisticated way and makes it fairly straightforward for the user to run scenarios of what if I dredged my channel? What if I raised my embankment by so much? What if uh, we had a future climate scenario of additional rainfall or additional flows? And you can put that into your model and then you can basically look at the results, whether you're looking at just the water level, a flood extent or a flood map, uh, or the velocities as to how, how fast the water is going in a particular area. So flood, flood model is, is, is a pretty sophisticated tool of bringing the science and technology that many academics have produced and we've worked on for many years since, since the late 70s and put, a, put it in a, a user interface that makes it practical and I'll say easy to use 
it's it's making it consistent to use so it's robust and people can can do it in a consistent way and from one project to the next and apply it as many many scenarios as possible. Hmm. So let's take a let's take a look here and then my next couple of questions for both of you kind of talk about next steps and like where we see the technology is going and I'll start with you Roger and I'd like to ask you know what role do you see for technologies such as artificial intelligence machine learning internet of things and real time remote sensing things like that how do you see that impacting flood modeling I see this having a significant impact in the future Artificial intelligence is, um, I see, I see this as being broken down and uh, machine learning, artificial neural networks, GAs, I see these as all part of uh, artificial intelligence or informatics. And I think, firstly, it will reduce the dependency of individuals' experience of parameters, for example, roughness, coefficient, and so forth. This can all be automated through the artificial intelligence schemes, picking the best parameters. If you ask two different, uh, even, I can remember when I was a young chap, I did the, one of the first modeling studies I worked on, the engineer put in a Manning's roughness coefficient or whatever. I can't remember what it was. And I asked him, how do you know it's 0.15, let's say? Why not 0.2 or 0.25? He said, ah, oh, young man, when you get to my age, you'll know what parameter you use. You need years of experience, young man, years of experience. And uh, he stuck by this figure and he didn't change it at all. So he didn't look at variability and so forth. So I, I see that being able to run a large range of an artificial intelligence tool could pick up, just taking this very simple example, all the literature in the field and picking the best value, for example, as your, as your baseline, and then you can perhaps vary that as well. So I see it in that sort of context. You can optimize hundreds of simulations to give you the ideal solution for optimizing the whole of the river basin to work out what should be the embankment rise here, there, or wherever to reduce flood risk. And, of course, it can take account of the local population density and so on. Mm-hmm. It can include the costs as well. So how are you going to invest most effectively to solve your flood risk problems in a river which often causes flooding at many sites down the river? There's only so much you can spend at any one time. And where is it best to spend that? Whereas historically, we've often perhaps um, spent the money where the people shout the loudest and have the impact to get on television and write the right letters to politicians and so forth. Mm-hmm. rather than perhaps do the best for the poorer end of the society who can't write those letters, can't have the impact, the same level of impact on television and so forth. Um, so we want to optimize for a wide variety of variables, flood impact, cost, mm-hmm. and so on. And then coming on to drones and and sensing technology, you can improve the modeling accuracy for the future by using state-of-the-art technology through remote sensing mm-hmm. and drones and so forth so we can get better and better resolution so we can get more and more confidence and one example if i may of this point i'm heavily involved it's a different area but the principle is the same mm-hmm. in designing lagoons for tidal energy and here we've used um, genetic algorithms and artificial neural networks to optimize a the number of turbines to give you the maximum uh, hydropower and B, we've then looked at a wide range of operations. So when you start opening the turbines and so forth, and you could say exactly the same for a flood defense system. And we've come up with increasing the capacity and the power that could be produced by typically 20% by using artificial neural networks and in this case, genetic algorithms. So I think we could optimize our solution and get better value for money, so to speak, or best, best pound for your buck 
mm-hmm. best investment for your buck through the use of artificial intelligence to take the core results from something like Flood Modeler and then run thousands of runs in a very, very short period of time. And also, it could be used to give you real-time predictions of flooding down a, a river catchment where things can be very rapid. So I see great opportunities to integrate uh, what I would call informatics tools, which are very data dependent, mm-hmm. with uh, deterministic models such as uh, how uh, Flood Modeler has been based historically. Hmm. That's interesting. And I can imagine the way that we reacted to flooding in the past, like you alluded to, it was driven maybe somewhat by people who had the money and could complain or whatever, but it may not have been modeling the entirety of the system. And it's like, well, we if we just listen to you know the squeaky wheel and we take care of them over here, but we're not thinking about this systemically, it's actually going to create more problems. We have to be able to take a larger view and, and do what's best for everybody as opposed to just focusing on a, on a single area. Richard, let me ask you about hydrological methods and you know what are some of the latest advances we're seeing in hydrological methods and you know what exciting developments are occurring there that can assist in flood model accuracy and response? It partly links back to what Roger was talking about, but it's not just hydrological methods. I think it's hydrological methods and, and hydrological techniques. Mm-hmm. So, for example, data underpins so much in our lives these days. And as as we get to store and acquire more hydrological data, mm-hmm. whether it be from levels or flows in rivers, whether it be rainfall from um, from radar it's adding to that rich data bank of information that we can we can build upon and for years we've been able to get good weather forecasts um if you if you, if you look at what it was 20 or 15 years ago to what they are compared today they're, they're significantly more accurate several mm-hmm. days out and it's because they've used data and we can see some rapid changes happening in the collection of hydrological data using real-time information we're seeing satellites going into into space later this year, which will give greater resolution and coverage globally of, of rainfall. So bringing all that together and looking after the data will unlock new analysis methods, new ways of doing predictive analytics, bringing in the remote sensing again. But when you combine that with hydraulic calculations and switching to high performance computing as as we've done recently we've we switched from using the, the CPU on a computer to using a GPU and we've had significant speed up times. That unlocks different techniques of analysis that just weren't practical before. And because of that you can run so many not just hundreds but thousands of what if scenarios or sensitivity analysis which enables us to understand the uncertainties in the models that we use, to understand the uncertainties in the data that we're using which all leads to higher accuracy of the models and, and higher, higher accuracy in our response. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Only recently for the Environment Agency here in England, mm-hmm. they adopted our technology to be able to do real-time 2D flood forecasting. And they've only been able to do that because typically they will want to model a catchment and get an answer within five minutes. Mm-hmm. To do a highly detailed 2D model, you might be taking five, six, seven, eight hours to get the answer. Mm-hmm. But by switching the technology, bringing in real-time river-level data mm-hmm. from existing systems, you can do that in a matter of minutes, which mm-hmm. previously wasn't possible. 
So when you bring all this together, it's, it's pretty exciting what we're starting to be able to do now. And I think we're just at a, at a tipping point as to what really will be happening in the future. Five years' time from now, I think our, our methods will have advanced quite rapidly. And I think the challenge will be the appetite of people to be able to willing to take it on because there is a, a fairly slow pace of change in our industry. Um, if you look at other industries, they've adopted technology far quicker than we have. I think this is a real opportunity for us as an industry to make real strides forward. Yeah. Oh, and I can see that, you know, the trajectory is like more and more data gets generated. The you know, So the computing power is accelerating, but the ability to make sense of that is accelerating. And I know like, you know, there's other technologies where you can take, like you alluded to, data that would take hours or maybe even days can be done in minutes now. And then, you know, as the interface becomes more and more simple, because I think that's what it comes down to, maybe what you're saying, Richard, is, you know, the experts, the professionals in the industry have to feel comfortable using the new technology. It's not just enough to say, hey, here's here's the shiny new thing. It's like, okay, well, how do I fold that into my workflow and I'm comfortable with it? You know, so as people get acclimated to new technology and are able to to kind of bring that into like how they do their jobs, you know, I, I think I just feel like it's kind of a perfect storm, you know, no pun intended, but like it kind of all comes together, right? And so the adoption will will raise because you know people are more uh, comfortable using these incredible tools that are are being provided to them. I agree with you completely, and I think the the underlying technology and methods. Mm-hmm. Is, is pretty well proven and, and, and roger gave some good examples of for example the tvd scheme mm-hmm. um, it's been around for years you know when to apply it and you can quite easily switch between different types of solvers to do things the, the trick is now is to be able to simplify the use of that for users being able to use the data that we're being able to create to enable people to make decisions as quickly as possible with as high confidence as mm-hmm. possible well, Roger and Richard, I want to thank you both so much for talking with me today about flood modeling and uh, flood mitigation efforts. Uh, very fascinating stuff. It'd be very interesting to see where where this goes and like where you know we can deploy cutting edge technology in these efforts. So I want to thank you both so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you.